Good to see you all this morning. How you doing? All right. I'm Greg Boyd. I'm a teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. It's really good to be here. I was on vacation last week with my family and my grandkids, and it was wonderful. Yeah. Appreciate Bruxy uh, filling in uh, via the, the, the video and stuff. Um, I'm just so delighted with the relationship that we have with the Meeting House. Love those guys. Love Bruxy and Tim Day. And, and so it's just so cool with technology here that uh, we can just pipe in the best preachers on the planet and get to have them here. So we're, we're a blessed people. Amen. All right. And then uh, next week, uh, yeah, uh, bring some friends. We're going to have this Q&A time. Vanessa spoke as if it was hard to stump me and Paul. Uh, and actually, just ask us anything about cars, and you got us. Uh, well, <laughs> what's the spark plug for? I, you know, but uh, you see, the, the trouble is that we wanted to have Q and A built into you know the kind of the flow of the church here because I love doing that. That's that's just a blast for me. Uh, Paul loves it as well. But I, it, I I just have trouble keeping ten minutes at the end of the message to do that. I always end up going over. Ugh. I'll get more disciplined. But uh, if you text in messages, then we're storing them up. I mean, text in questions that you have as I'm going through there. Just text that, uh, that, that number there. And uh, then we're, we're, we're storing them all up, and then we'll just bombard uh, ourselves here uh, next week. So uh, come and be a part of that. We are in this series on uh, Colossians. Or the, it's on Colossians. We just got out of a series dealing with Jesus' death and, and how he outsmarted the, the principalities and powers and things of that sort. So we're moving on today, a whole eight verses, which for us is like magnificent. We're going to cover eight verses here this morning, though it's unlikely this will be the only time we cover them. We'll probably come back to them 19 times after this. But uh, the God's word is rich. So we're looking at Colossians chapter 2, verses 15 through 23. I got to say at the start that I need to apologize to the team that I work with to put together the message and they package the stuff and come up with cool graphics. And I have to send them all my stuff on Thursday by noon. And a lot of life can happen between Thursday at noon and uh, Saturday uh, when I come to preach this. And so there's always tweaking that goes on. But this message, it doesn't look anything like what I sent them on Thursday. So they did a lot of work for nothing. Uh, I think maybe I'll preach that message next week or the week after, whatever. Not next week, we're going to Q&A, but after that. You just got to go with the flow. I wasn't feeling it. I was feeling this. And so you got to go with the flow. Amen? All right. So there you go. My apologies to the sermon prep team. So this message is entitled, Everybody's Got a Hungry Heart. And if you're over 20, you know what that's referring to. Got a wife and kids in Baltimore, Jack. I went out for a ride and I didn't go back. Like a river that just keeps on flowing, I took a wrong turn and I kept on going. Because everybody's got a hungry heart. Everybody's got a hungry heart. Lay down your money and you play your part. Everybody's got a hungry heart. Everybody's got a hungry heart. The boss does it better (laughs) a little bit. But it's so weird because that's such like a, it sounds like a party song, like, oh, everybody, you know, like you'd be partying to it. But if you think about the lyrics, it sucks. I mean, the guy's got a wife and kids in Baltimore and he's on a ride and he just decides he's going to keep on going because he's got a hungry heart, needs to be fulfilled. What about the wife and the kids? They're, they're going to have hungry stomachs now. I mean, it's, but um, it captures the truth. Everybody's got a hungry heart. And you come to Christ and you experience Tremendous transformation and a peace that passes understanding and a fullness of life. But we got to be honest that we also have a hungry heart. And as we're going to see here a little bit later on, we're supposed to have a hungry heart. That's a good thing. 
if you use it in the right way and for what it's for. But the enemy can use it, we're going to see, in a very wrong way. Everybody's got a hungry heart. It comes out of this passage, Colossians chapter 2, verses 15 through 23. Paul starts by saying, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We looked at that for several weeks, several weeks ago. Therefore, and that therefore is kind of important, because we've been set free, therefore don't let anyone judge you but what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, or a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Blows me away that people are still sometimes all been out of shape on that. How come you're not worshiping on Saturday? Well, here, don't let anyone judge you about that. These are a shadow of things that were to come, but the reality, however, is found in Christ. And that concept of shadow there is really cool. That's what I was kind of going to preach on this week, but I'm going to postpone that till later on. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. This phrase, the worship of angels, very sky, is not the usual word that's used for worship. Uh, the usual word is proskune. This word has more of the connotations, and I checked that out with our resident scholar, Vanessa, because it's my Greek's 25 years old. She's just studying it now, so uh, she's got frustration. But she agrees with me, so you know she's right. Um, and it has more it has to do with religious <laughs> connotations, like uh, invoking or praying to, not necessarily veneration. What we know from archaeological evidence is that uh, angels played a large role in the piety of at least many quarters of the Roman Empire, um, and uh, people would pray to different angels for different needs. And so there's angels that were in charge of taking care of your family, or taking care of your business, or your health, your sexuality, whatever. Um, and, and so they pray to these angels. And so apparently the group that Paul is talking about here, it's a group that we're going to see in a little bit here, is called Gnostics. Um, they were really into angels and invoking angels for various needs, for various reasons. And they believed that Christians were disqualified. And Paul says, don't let them disqualify you. He's talking about their judgment of, of them. That just means you're taken out of the race. You're not even in the running. You Christians, you're missing the boat because you don't have what we have. And he goes on and says, such people go into great detail about what they have seen and their unspiritual minds puff them up with idle notions. People who are prideful about their excessive spirituality. All the stuff they've seen in the angelic realm. They've lost connection with the head. They've been decapitated. The head, of course, is Christ, the source of life. These folks, because of their obsession with the angels and all that kind of stuff, he says, they've lost connection with the head. They've been decapitated. From whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. When the body is connected to the head, it grows. But when you get obsessed in all sorts of stuff that doesn't have to do with Christ, you get severed from the head, and of course then you don't grow. A body that's decapitated tends to decompose rather quickly. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, that's what we studied a few weeks ago, what Christ did for us, we're dead to them. Since we are dead, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. What Paul's saying here, apparently some of the Christians at Colossae have been under, come under the influence of this Gnostic group with all of their rules, and so they're starting to submit to them. There's certain things we can touch and taste and handle and whatnot. And Paul is saying, look, you're dead to that stuff. You've been set free. That goes back to that therefore we read earlier on. Because of what Christ did, why would you ever return to that? Don't go back to that. It's garbage. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on Mere human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, but they're self-imposed worship. They're false humility. 
possible to have a false humility. I'm too humble to have a false humility, however, but uh, some people have a false humility. <laughs> and their harsh treatment of the body, these people were really into asceticism, the austere treatment of the body, they would fast for long periods of time. They do all of that and it looks good, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. That phrase sensual indulgence, um, I think is, a, is an unfortunate translation. The word sensual that's used there is just the word sarx, which is the word for flesh. And the primary meaning of flesh for Paul isn't physical flesh. It has to do with a false view of the world, a false self. Um, it's living as though and thinking as though Christ were not Lord. That's the flesh. And indulgence just means to satisfy something. And so I think what Paul's saying here is that though this looks like wisdom and they look so spiritual, you know, and, and they fast all the time and they have all these visions and whatever, it doesn't satisfy their fleshly cravings. They have a hungry heart. Their false worldview creates a craving for something, and you never satisfy that. It doesn't, it doesn't bring what it promises to bring. All right. Everybody's got a hungry heart. Pray with me here for a moment. Abba, Father, I thank you for the privilege that I have to speak your word to this wonderful group of people and to others who are listening uh, on podcasts, television, other means. And I, God, I just pray a, a tremendous blessing on every one of them. I pray, Lord, that you open up our hearts and minds to receive your word. And God, I pray that you just impregnate each word, each consonant, each vowel with your authority to do what my words could never do. We're not interested in an oratory performance or a speech that's worthless. We are interested, God, in your spirit invading what comes out of my mouth uh, so that you use it to build your kingdom and to tear down strongholds and to free us from lies and, and false ways of meeting needs, Lord God, and to deep, more deeply root us into the head who is Jesus Christ, that we may be part of the body that is growing together and, and growing strong and not decapitated uh, and dying and chasing uh, idols, Lord God. Free us to be your people, empowered by your spirit in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen, 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 amen. Okay. This group that Paul is talking about, we, we've seen him hint at this several times already in the book of Colossians. Um, it, it's a group that is broadly called, it goes by the name of Gnosticism. It wasn't called that back then, but we call it that now. Gnosticism. It wasn't one religion, it was more of a cultural movement. It's called Gnosticism because it comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. These people thought they had secret knowledge on stuff. They were the knowers, the Gnostics. The cultural movement. It's very much like our New Age movement today. It's not like one particular religion. It's, it's rather a mindset. And part of the mindset is that, and I'm sure most of you have, have come in contact with this, the mindset is that uh, if you're broad-minded and really spiritual, you don't get locked into one particular religion, one particular belief. You, you, you kind of encompass everything. People who get locked into one particular belief, like Jesus is Lord and he's the only Lord, well, they're narrow-minded. They're... You know, they're just missing it. Uh, the Gnostics grabbed from everywhere. So they would borrow from Greek religion and, and India and, and uh, Egypt. They were really big into Egypt because they had a lot of the mystery texts. And, and they, some would borrow from the Old Testament. Some would borrow from Christianity. And so there were some Jewish Christian Gnostic groups that took Christ and kind of fused him with a bunch of other stuff. And that's what they did. They, they, they were collected. They synthesized all of this into, and packaged it in a particular way. And that was their religious system. Uh, many times, not always, but many, many of these groups were rather legalistic. And clearly the group that Paul's talking about here is legalistic. 
because part of what they're appropriating into the religious system is the Old Testament. So they're going by a strict adherence to the Old Testament about festivals and about uh, Sabbath and new moon celebrations and dietary laws and the austere treatment of the body. Many of the Gnostics would they believe that by subjugating the body, uh, they would release their spirit to have these visions. And that was really what they were all about, these visions, which gave them secret knowledge. Gnosticism, gnosis, it means knowledge. And uh, they, they, they believed that God, or the one, they sometimes called him the one, the oneness of all things, that his glory is diffused throughout creation. But especially in the angelic realm, at least for us humans, the way we make, make progress in, in getting uh, closer to God is by going up to an angelic hierarchy. They believe that there's this angelic hierarchy where the, God's glory is diffused throughout this hierarchy. And the higher up you are, the more glory you display, like a prism. And so their secret knowledge was about the angelic realm, different ranks of angels. And by knowing the different ranks of angels and things like that, uh, it, it, it allowed you to then invoke them so that they would now uh, be working on your behalf. At least some Gnostic groups taught this. So this experience that people would have, this, was, this is how they sold themselves. This was their selling point. We are offering people right here, right now, an experience that will fulfill you and an experience that will give you access to the uh, heavenly realm. And uh, you'll know about the angels and experience the angels. And then those angels will be working on your behalf in this life. And so you can be better at your business and better at your family and better at everything. Um, and, and we even know from archaeological texts that these angels, they believe, would curse their enemies. You know, so you could break curses on people. And so their selling point was you get to have fullness now and you get to have this wonderful experience now and you get to have your best life now even on your business affairs. This was, it was a wildly popular religion. You can see why. You get everything now. And see, these Gnostics would look down on the Christians. They thought they had a superior form of spirituality, just like uh, most New Age folks today look down on Christians as sort of these silly, narrow people who just believe in Jesus. And they're missing the thing because there's so much more. Why would you limit yourself to Jesus? And so the, the Gnostic mindset would be something like this. You Christians, you obsess with on Jesus, but you're missing it. You're disqualified. You're not in the running. You're out of the race. You're not even really, you know, you're not even barking at the right tree. Jesus is part of the fullness. They believe that he was, at least the, the, the Christian Gnostic groups would take Jesus and blend him with the fullness. But he's not the whole fullness. No, he's part of it. Um, and so you Christians are limiting yourself. And you Christians... You are waiting for heaven to come. You're waiting for the kingdom to come in the future. And then you think you'll get all your answers to your questions and the mysteries will be resolved. And then you'll be fulfilled. But we're telling people you can have heaven now. You can know the secrets now. You don't have to wait till later on. You, you, you get it now. And uh, you Christians, you, you rely on grace. You know, that you think that it's all by God's grace that you stand. But that's why you don't require people to adhere strictly to all the rules and regulations and dietary codes and and you don't require people to treat their bodies austerely. And that's why they don't have these transcendent, ecstatic, euphoric experiences that we offer them. So they look down uh, on the Christians. It, it's, it's a little bit like a, a guy I knew uh, back when I was like 20, 21 years old. I was, I was working out a lot, and we went to European Health Spa, and I met this guy at this European Health Spa. It was right over here in Maplewood. Um, and I was getting really ripped and lifting a lot of weights, getting pumped up. And this guy I'd work out with there, and he was huge. I mean, that guy's massive. I was just like ripped, massive. Um, spent all his time just working out. He was kind of a depressed guy, and I think this was his way of medicating his pain. Uh, he was involved in all the, you know, the competitions, you know, the. Um, 
Those little speedos they wear. <laughs> he was into that stuff, but he was really ripped. Then all of a sudden, and he knew a lot about weightlifting, so he would you know, teach me stuff. In fact, he beat me in a bench pressing competition. It was, you know, he, I, I came in second, though. I ripped my shoulder out, though. 310. I was 21 years old. Did 310. I had to be three, get three reps. I only got two. He got three. He won. So there you go. Uh, and then I couldn't even lift my arm for six months. But you don't need to know that. It was, it was like, like this. It was like, it's terrible. I totally ripped it out. I wanted that number, that third rep. That was an ADD moment. So the guy disappears. He stops coming to the gym. I don't see him for like six, seven, eight months. Then he shows up again, and the guy's a twig. My, I lost about 100 pounds. He's just a twig. It's like, dude, what happened to you? And, uh, oh, what happened is he joined this group called Ekinkar. That's when you know about Ekinkar. Now, the headquarters is right here in Shakopee. And it is, I think, the group, uh, I've studied it a little bit, and it seems to me to be really close, if not identical, with the group that Paul's talking about here. Uh, some different lingo, but same kind of mindset, where they believe that by adhering to certain techniques, mental techniques and dietary codes and things like that, uh, you can have these transcendent experiences where you encounter these ascended masters, and they have a list of all these ascended masters. Jesus is one of the ascended masters, so he made the grade, but there's like 900 and some others. And, and by having this, these techniques, you have these experiences where you encounter these ascended masters, and they give you, they impart to you their wisdom and things like that. And he would claim that he would actually meet these people. Now, so far as I can tell, talking to him, and I've met several others since then, it's all in their imagination. They'll talk as though it's real. Yeah, I met, you know, St. Germain last night in my living room. But if you question, like, okay, like, if I was there, would I have seen him? It's no, no, it's all in my imagination. But they think it's real. Um, I, I, you know, I think it's either just their imagination, power suggestion, maybe some demonic influence, I don't know. But uh, his attitude towards me was really condescending. It was sort of patronizing. And so, like, because I was a new Christian at this time, and um, and so he would say, "Well, Greg, you know, that's I, I'm nice that you're, you know, where you're at in your spiritual journey, uh, but it's sad, kind of, I think, because you're so narrow. You you limit yourself to Jesus, and Jesus is one of the ascended masters. But there's so much more. This is exactly what the Gnostics were saying. There's so much more, and uh, 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 if you just open yourself up." And get involved in these techniques and this kind of spirituality and the discipline of the body. Well, then you'd, you'd encounter the ascended masters and you wouldn't care about weightlifting. And, and, you know, and I respected the guy's sincerity and, and everything. That was really good. But what I said to him, and I say it even more emphatically now, is, is this. Um, I believe the imagination is powerful and it's a God-given tool. It gives us access into the spiritual realm. I, I really believe that. And I, I believe in offering up your imagination to the Holy Spirit as, 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 as when we worship and when you pray and you can encounter the real Lord there, and I believe in that. But anything in the world that can be used for good can also be used for evil. And the more good it can be used for, the more evil it can be used for. It's a principle of proportionality. And, and, and so what I said to him is, it's great to use your imagination, but I wouldn't base what you believe on that. Because imagination can lead you astray. I can give you all sorts of historical reasons and philosophical reasons and a ton of other reasons why, why I believe Jesus Christ and not some ascended master or some guru or wise teacher, but he's God incarnate. He's God on earth. He's a revelation of God, the fullness of God's revelation. I can tell you why I believe that. Can you give me any reason why you believe in these ascended masters? Is there any proof that they're anything other than just human beings or just some kind of a legend? And he couldn't. His only proof was that he experiences them in his mind. 
And I was saying, look, the mind is a powerful thing, but don't use it to establish truth. Don't use your imagination to establish truth because other influences can get in there. You should really know why you believe what you believe and take your stand on that. And so we would you know, debate back and forth on stuff, never did convert him. But his attitude towards me was the attitude that these Gnostics would have had towards the, the Christians at Colossae. You silly Christians, you'll just limit yourself with this grace stuff and Jesus stuff, and you're missing it. You're disqualified. Uh, you're not experiencing the fullness. Paul's response, Paul's response to this group is, is something like this. Paul isn't against adhering to religious festivals and certain holy days and, and celebrations. And he's not against, if, if someone wants to worship on one day rather than another, that's fine. And he's not against people having personal convictions about uh, you know, drinking alcohol or, or eating meat or anything like that. Uh, it, as long as you are doing it out of a, either a personal preference, it's just what you like, or you're doing it because it's part of your culture and you want to respect your culture, or you're doing it because God convicted you of it. Because God sometimes convicts people of things that he doesn't convict everybody with. God, 10 years ago, 9 years ago, convicted me about eating meat. Uh, but that's my conviction. And Paul would be fine with that. Follow your conviction. You follow God's leading. But Paul really got irate the minute somebody would take their personal conviction and turn it into a law that everyone's supposed to adhere to. The minute someone gets a personal conviction and starts judging other people, you read about this in Romans 12, Romans 14, the minute you start judging other people because they're not doing what you think that they're supposed to be doing, well, now, now Paul's irate. You're going down the wrong track. Or the minute you think that your convictions make you more spiritual than other people, I don't drink alcohol. Oh, I don't eat meat. You know, the lesser Christians do. Well, now you're getting screwed up in the head and Paul's going to get ticked off at you. <laughs> do it, do it, but don't do it for those reasons. Or if you think, especially if you think that doing your rules and your regulations and your spiritual stuff, whatever it is, fine. Knock your socks off. Wonderful. Worship on Saturday. If that's the day you like to worship on, fine. But if you think that that somehow increases your standing before God, it improves upon the righteousness that you have as a gift from Jesus Christ. The minute you think that, well, now Paul, now Paul blows a gasket. The whole book of Galatians is about this. Because you are now in bondage. You've put yourself in bondage. The minute you think, you know, that's the game changer. The minute you think that your deeds, your rules, your regulations, your spiritual disciplines are somehow improving upon what Jesus did for you, well, that's the game changer because now you're climbing a ladder to God rather than resting in the grace of God and the mercy of God. And that changes everything. Amen. Paul gets livid. And, and it doesn't matter how much or to what degree you do that, the slightest little submission to a rule-based relationship with God, it, 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 it's, it undermines the, the, the reality of what God's done for us in, in Jesus Christ. The minute you think that, that you're going to impress God, get God to like you more because of what you do or what you do, don't do or what you handle or what you touch or what you taste, uh, you are now, you've entered into the very thing that Jesus set us free from. You've entered into that law kingdom where the accuser reigns. That law kingdom that we talked about several weeks ago where uh, uh, that's all condemnation. Now you are in bondage. The reason why Jesus came, Paul says, and this is why that therefore that connects this whole passage together is so important. That therefore. He set us free. He disarmed the principalities and powers. He defeated them. He made a laughing stock out of them. Therefore, don't ever be involved in the judgment game. Therefore, don't think you can ever 
you ever need to or ever can improve upon the righteousness that you have in Christ. Therefore, stand fast in the freedom for which Christ has set you free. Praise God. Therefore, don't go back to the rules and regulations that do not touch, that do not taste. The, this day is better than that day. Or I'm more spiritual than you because I eat meat or don't eat meat or drink wine or don't drink wine. Therefore, because he set you free, he's canceled the code that was against you. He canceled the charge of your indebtedness. He blew apart the economy and freed everybody who was in debt. Uh, he, he made a laughing stock of the enemy because he used the enemies to play into his plan. And they were the ones who orchestrated this crucifixion. And the result of that whole thing is that now the sins have been nailed to the cross, praise God. And we've been forgiven and we've been cleansed and we've been set free. Stand fast in that freedom. Amen. Stand fast in that freedom. Don't go back even an inch. And the minute you go back even an inch, you've changed everything. You've undermined everything. Our standing before God, our standing before God has got to be 100% rooted in the character of God revealed in Christ and what he did for us on Calvary. What we do in our life expresses that righteousness, but we don't acquire it. And when you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to do a lot of things you otherwise wouldn't do, and you're going to not do a lot of things you might otherwise do. There's a lot of things that I would do if I wasn't a Christian. Heck, yeah. (laughs) But I'm not. I'm not. And and there's a a lot of stuff I do that I otherwise wouldn't do. Um, I wouldn't be up here preaching to you if I wasn't a Christian, I don't think. That'd be kind of awkward. But, you know, you know a, 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 a disciple follows Jesus, and, and that involves discipline. And I, to grow in Christ is to be, take on a disciplined life. And uh, there's a place for fasting and, and, and uh, you know, being involved in spiritual disciplines and denying yourself and crucifying yourself. Absolutely. But see, I want to do all of that not because I want to get God to like me. I do it because God likes me. <laughs> you don't do it to try to get righteousness. You do it because you are righteous. It's, it's a... Cart before the horse kind of a thing. There's a whole lot that's going to flow out of you when the love of God really gets in your life. When that love of God starts to compel you, man, you'll live a sacrificial life. You'll sacrifice your time and resources and money and and everything for the kingdom. But you don't do it because you're trying to get something. You do it because you already got it. You got the kingdom. You got God Almighty dwelling within you. The Spirit of God dwelling within you. You're infinitely rich, you know. And so you live in a way that expresses that for sure. But Paul is saying, never go back. The minute you go back at all, Paul says, you've lost connection with the head. Just look at that. You've been decapitated. Uh, it's because Christ is the one source of life. Christ is the one source of life. You've lost connection with the head, 219. You're severed. Why? Because now Christ is not enough. You're doing it on your own. However much or however little, you've un- in principle, you've undermined the very idea of head, the idea of Christ as the source of life. See, for Paul, and this just goes against the whole New Age philosophy where all roads lead to God and everyone, every, everything's equal. For Paul, it's an all or nothing thing. Uh, you either get all your life from Christ or you're not getting life at all from Christ. You're either it's standing before God completely on the basis of grace or you're not standing before God. Either your relationship with God is entirely mediated through Jesus Christ, who is the one mediator between God and humans. Not one of the mediators. He's the one mediator between God and human beings. You're either completely relating to God through Jesus Christ, or you're not being related to God. And that's not to say that everybody who doesn't know Jesus is absolutely lost, but it is to say that anyone who's reconciled to God, whether they know it or not, is reconciled through Christ. Because there's not a lot of reconcilers out there. There's not a lot of saviors out there. There's not a lot of lords out there. There's one, 
and his name is Jesus Christ. So for Paul, it's an all or nothing thing. That's why Paul is just, he's so insistent on, on, on everything being in Christ. These, uh, these, these Gnostics were saying that the fullness, the Greek word there is pleroma. The, the fullness is found out in the angelic realm. The fullness is found amidst the myriad of angels. The fullness is found in our secret knowledge. The fullness is found through our spiritual techniques and our discipline and dietary laws. And Paul over and over again says, Colossians 2.9 for example, no, 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 the fullness of the Godhead is found in Christ. The fullness of the Godhead is found in Christ. What he's saying is everything that makes God God is found in Christ. Everything that, everything that defines God is found in Christ. The Godness of God is found in Christ. It's not like part of God is in Christ or some of God or some God-likeness is found in Christ. No, all of the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus Christ. You couldn't say it more emphatically. Uh, if you want to know God, Paul is saying, and this is found throughout the New Testament, you keep your eyes focused on Jesus Christ. Uh, everything you need to know about God, everything you can need to know about God, everything that there is to know about God is found in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not like there's a little bit of unchristlikeness out there in God. Some people think that, the hidden part of God. Uh, no, the fullness is right there in Christ. There's no unchristlike part of God. There's no secret that he's keeping from us. In Christ, we see the, the, the revelation of God's very essence, his very heart. All of the fullness is found in him. Now, you, of course, can see the glory of God in, in, in the, the universe and the stars. And you see the glory of God in nature and the glory of God in, in people. Some people some people hide it pretty well, but uh, you know, we're in the image of God, glory of God. You see the glory of God in, in precious moments with your grandkids, the glory of God in great music and the glory of God in, in, in art and yeah, so the glory of God fills the universe, for sure. But if you want to know the character of God's glory, the character of God's heart, the character of God's essence, Paul says, and the whole New Testament says over and over again, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and on Jesus Christ alone. Don't go chasing after some angelic realm to find the glory. Don't go over here, over there, in this text or that text, going to Egypt or even going to the Old Testament or going to ancient Greece. No, in terms of knowing what God is like in his innermost heart, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, the one who died for us, praying for our forgiveness with his last breath. That is, with, that is what God is like to his very core. End of discussion. Amen. Yeah. Amen. All right. So, here's the thing. We've got, if you're a disciple, you've surrendered your life to Christ, you, you've got Jesus. You've got Jesus and you're in Jesus. Um. But the reality is that even when you're in Jesus and you're knowing Jesus and you're growing in Jesus, there are times when, and maybe all the time to some degree, when you're empty. You feel empty. You feel vacant. You feel incomplete. It manifests itself in a lot of different ways. There's a sense of disappointment with life or frustration with life. Things didn't turn out the way you wanted. Dreams didn't come true. Or you're just frustrated because you just don't feel as fulfilled as you thought you were going to feel. Um, there's an emptiness that is there. Everybody's got a hungry heart, including Christians. And anyone who tells you otherwise is lying or deluded. Everybody has emptiness. But see, here's the thing. We, we don't like that emptiness because it's painful. But it actually is a gift. Because it's there as a homing device to drive us to continually seek to get closer to Christ. It's the eye of, that, it's the, eye of the tiger. It's a hunger. If we stop being hungry, we stop pursuing we become couch potatoes. 
And, and God wants us to always be pursuing him. Seek first the kingdom. There's always a seeking that goes on. But we wouldn't seek if there wasn't a hunger. He wants us to pursue him and to get closer to him. So hunger is a good thing. And not only that, but however close you get to Christ, and there's always more depth to explore, but however close you get, until we see him face to face, there's always going to be some incompleteness. Paul says, I see through a, a glass darkly. It's always going to be dark. There's always going to be a sense of incompleteness, a lack of fullness until he returns. So that hunger is there to keep us yearning for the second coming. Say, come Lord Jesus. We're supposed to want him to return and want the creation to be made complete and want evil to be eradicated. We're supposed to want the end of the world as we know it. And, and, and by staying hungry, by not getting too satisfied, it keeps us looking forward to that time and living towards that time. Reminding us that a future time is coming when all wrongs will be made right. So there's this emptiness that we have. Now, here's the thing. That, that emptiness can also be a sales pitch that the enemy uses against us. When we have that hunger, the enemy comes along and says, Ah, so you're not fulfilled, huh? Well, that's because Christ is not enough. Christ is not enough, obviously. You're not full. Um, and if he, if he can get away with it, he'll even convince you that Christ isn't true at all. I, I've seen people who have bailed on the thing because they said, look, I tried it. I tried it, and uh, it, it just didn't work for me. It didn't, didn't work for me. I wasn't fulfilled. Which presupposes that we're supposed to always be fulfilled. There's this magic pill out there. If you take it, you'll always be fulfilled. And, uh, and so since it didn't deliver on that, uh, the person just completely gave up on this. The enemy comes and says... Christ is not enough. And the minute we believe that and start looking elsewhere for fullness, we're falling into a trap. And if we stay in that trap and continue down that course, we're heading towards decapitation. We'll be severed from the head, the one source of life. And, and any, anytime we're looking for other sources, we're to that degree cutting off our head. Our head is Jesus Christ. The truth of the matter is that though you're empty, at times, maybe sometimes painfully so, it's not because Christ is not enough. Uh, if you're empty, it's because you don't have enough of Christ. Christ is enough. That's not the problem. It's that we don't have enough of Christ. Now, even when we have all of Christ that we can take in any moment, we'll always need more. We'll always hunger for more until the kingdom comes in fullness. And the hunger is there to drive us towards that. But the problem is not that Christ is not enough. But see, that's the sales pitch. That's the sales pitch. And the sales pitch is that emptiness that you have, well, this can fulfill it or that can fulfill it. Over here, you can fulfill it. This religious system can fulfill it. And now he's reeling you in, heading towards decapitation. It's a little bit like in a marriage. You know, in a marriage, there's going to be times when you're not completely fulfilled. Sorry. Uh, times when you're just not feeling complete, uh, not feeling valued, not feeling appreciated, not feeling understood, not feeling like the person thinks you're sexy any longer or they don't laugh at your jokes any longer or... Or whatever, you know, come on, marriage, it's marriage. Uh, and even the best of marriages have times when there's, there's a feeling of incompleteness. No human being is going to be uh, just perfectly matched with you so that every need you could ever have is going to be fulfilled. They're not even there for that reason. Um, there's always going to be an emptiness there. I thought I'd get a few more amens out of that than I got. But... <laughs> Probably some people just got engaged last night and they're like, what? <laughs> No, and so here, here's the thing. So there's, a, there's always a, a certain kind of emptiness. And, and if you're not committed to your spouse, 
If you're not committed to your spouse, well, then there's a sales pitch that the enemy will use on you. And sales pitch is, that person would laugh at your jokes. That person would appreciate you. That person would think you're sexy. That person would fulfill you. That person would be a perfect match for you. That person over there. And, and now he's reeling you in. And see, that hunger, uh, if you're not committed to your spouse, that hunger can begin to lead you astray. The same thing is true in our relationship with Christ. We're married to Jesus. And if we're not committed to Christ, even when we're hungry, maybe somebody's desperately hungry, then the hunger won't drive us to Christ. If we're not committed, then the hunger will actually drive us in a different direction because now we're going to start listening to the sales pitch, the enemy's sales pitch. And it comes in a lot of varieties. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's smart at this stuff. Uh, if religion is the thing that will get you, he'll use a religious sales pitch. Uh, you know, it's, it's, Christ is not enough. Well, maybe it's because over there in Ekinkar, they've got the, the answer. Or over there in that astrology club, they got the answer. Or in this meditation group, they got the answer. Or over here, over there. And, and you start looking at the stuff, trying to, you know, thinking that it's going to fulfill the hunger that you have. And I'm not against reading on that stuff. I believe in being broadly read and, and, and studying that. I don't think you should just read Christian books. But if you're reading it with a hungry heart, it's like the difference between having a friend and then having a friend that you're investigating as a possibility when you're already married. You're cheating on Christ. <laughs> you see? Uh, and today we're bombarded with this. That Gnosticism that was plaguing the ancient Christians, it's all around today. You go to a Borders bookstore, there's all these books for that sales pitch. Promising you these techniques will make you full. This religion will make you full. These beliefs will make you full. If you do this, will you just be full? You can have heaven now. You can know the mysteries now. You can know the secrets now. It's all over the place. Man, the most famous one is that book, The Secret, uh, written by Rhonda Byrne. I'm sure she's a lovely, wonderful, sincere person, but I think she's really uh, misguided here. And this has got, it was huge, bestseller, made millions of dollars. Uh, and, and what she basically does, it's typical Gnosticism, is she grabs from a million different sources, uh, you know, ancient texts, and some from Christianity, whatever, and everything that has to do with positive thinking, pop psychology, the power of you, and all that kind of stuff. She brings it together and says, this is a secret even though it's been out there for 3,000 years and everyone who's ever studied this stuff knows about it, but this is her secret. Ah, look, here it is. And there's some truth in that. I mean, she's quoting Jesus after all. But see, the truth is all, it's distorted because it's used in service to you. The claim there is that everything is possible, nothing is impossible. Which is, if you think about it, redundant. <laughs> Obviously, if everything's possible, then nothing is impossible. That's, uh, there's my little geek side coming out. Which would be great if she said everything's possible with God or in Jesus everything's possible, but that's not the claim. The claim is, and then she came followed up with the, the power and then the magic. Okay, this is the trilogy. Now I'm, I'm told they're going to make a, a movie out of this. <sighs> How can you make a movie out of this? There's not even a plot. I, I don't know. But the idea is that everything's possible with you. You've got the power. You can do it. You're, you've got, you know, the, the Christ self is in you. And, 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 and the, the idea is that if you just uh, have mind over matter and have this kind of faith and say the right things and do the right things and the right incantations, then the universe will work in your favor or God or the angels or whatever will work in your favor. And so you can get the Lexus that you've always wanted and that diamond necklace that you've always wanted, the nice car you've ever always wanted and the spouse that you've ever wanted. It's ancient Gnosticism all over again and you're the center of the universe and everything else is working for you. Um, and it, it's that same promise. You can be fulfilled. You can have it all right now. Everything's possible. Sales pitch. And if that doesn't work for you, well, then there's, uh, the sales pitch can come in a carnal way. And that's just your typical, I mean, we get this all the time. We know about this one. Uh, it's, it's, 
it's what America's run on. <laughs> you know, if only you'll get more, well, then you'll be happy. Happiness is just around the corner if you'll just get that Lexus or if you'll just get the better car or the better house or if you get that job promotion or if you just get famous enough and people start, you know, acknowledging your gifts. If you just have this breakthrough, if you only get that younger spouse, you know, if only you this or that or the other thing, well, then you'll be happy. Then you'll be fulfilled. And, and the enemy's out there just, just getting you to chase all around. You're in the process of being decapitated. A lot of sales pitches out there. The most recent one that's driving me crazy because I hear about it all the time is the sales pitch that you get on your own Facebook page. Watch out for Facebook pages. Technology can be of God, but it can also be of the devil. And if I hear this one more time, I'm going to go nuts where somebody has a hungry heart because their spouse of 20 years doesn't understand them. And, and Oh, but there's that guy. He shows up on your Facebook. He wants to be your friend. He You used to date back in high school. Why'd you ever leave him? He understood you. It was so much better back then. Now he's kind of throwing out little zingers. Hey, are you happy in your marriage? They usually say it more subtle than that. Uh, so how's your marriage going? Oh, really? Well, my marriage isn't going so good either. Why don't we meet at a cafe? Boom! Sucker! You're trapped! Man, you just got it! You know, it's like, come on, it's happening all over the place. In midlife crisis, you start looking at the past, those glory days, another boss song. It's like, oh, yeah, it could have been so wonderful. And uh, you're living a dream, and it never works out. It does not work out. It doesn't work out. You know, it's just, uh, stick with reality. It's, see, so here's the thing. I'll just end with this. Three things you got to know. One is, the sales pitch is a lie. It's a lie. Everybody's got a hungry heart. And, and if, if someone says otherwise, they're selling you something. They're selling you something. And they may be sincere, but then they're just deluded. You know, self-deluded. These books promise, these religions promise, and the carnal consumerism promises this fullness, walking two feet off the ground the rest of your life, or the sexual experience that will finally make you, or whatever. And it never delivers. It never delivers. We know this. Some, some of us have tried this stuff. It just doesn't deliver. It can give you a short buzz, but I've done drugs that do that. I mean, yeah, you know, that was a wild experience, but it doesn't fulfill. It's a lie. Second thing is this. The very thought that you have a right to be fulfilled is itself a lie. That's, we think we have a right to this, but look at this. Today, in the last 24 hours, approximately 30,000 kids starved to death. And we're worried about finding fulfillment. Let's get a picture here. Uh, a third of the world lives hand to mouth. Where's the next meal coming from? And we're worried about fulfillment. You got disasters all over the place. Colorado is burning now. People are losing their houses. People are dying. This is a world where disasters are a dime a dozen. I mean, just terrible stuff going on. The weather pattern. Yes. You ever notice how often the weather's in the front news these days? It's, it's incredible. Something weird's going on. But uh, it's a, it's a spiritually oppressed world, right? This is a world that's under bondage. And there's suffering all over the place. Sometimes nightmares suffering going on. Uh, in Africa, there's tribes that have been committing genocide on one another for, for decades. And it's just a d- painful, painful, oppressed world. What makes anyone think that they have a right to fulfillment? It's a fallen world. We're, we're, we're not going to be fulfilled. Not now, not totally. In Christ, you can have experiences where, I hope you've had this, but if you haven't, don't worry about it because it's not a litmus test. But there are times where you, it's mountaintop experience where you just say, if I could just stay here, camp here, I, I would never want again. You're getting a little slice of heaven where you're, there's a total fullness. It's like, ah, ah. 
but see, you got to come down from the mountaintop because you got to go to your job sooner or later, and you got to earn money, and you got to deal with your ordinary workers, and you got to, you know, change diapers again. And so the world comes back at you. And thank God for the little experiences, but but the reality is that in this world, there's going to be an emptiness there. But see, here's the thing, and this is my last point, and that is that even though there's emptiness, and it can, it can manifest in a lot of different ways, loneliness, uh, a sense of out-of-placeness, alienation, depression. Even though that's there, Christ is enough. And we'll never have enough of him until the kingdom comes in fullness. But he is enough. Uh, it's enough for me to know, though there's times of emptiness, that he loves me. Uh, I'm loved. And whether I feel it or not, I know I'm loved. Whether I feel it or not, I know what my value is before him. I know who I am in Christ. Whether I feel it or not, I know where I'm going. I know my inheritance. I, I know what's going on in this world. And, and, and just to be held by God in the midst of my emptiness, to be, to be just know that I'm seated with him and I'm forgiven in the midst of my emptiness, it is enough. It is enough. It is enough. I'm rich. I'm rich. And you're rich. Amen. You're rich. So you don't need to be craving after this perpetual fullness. But he does want us to be seeking him. That's what the emptiness is there for, to seek him. And so I want to encourage you. In fact, here, uh, let's, let's do it a little... Uh, and some of you just saying it, let's practice it uh, for one minute here. Close your eyes for a moment. And I want you right now, and let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us get honest with this. Uh, where are you hungry? Or what does your hunger look like? And you are hungry. Everybody's got a hungry heart. How are you hungry? Holy Spirit helps to see it. Get in touch with it. Be honest. How are you hungry? It might look like a disappointment in life sense of insignificance. You, you didn't amount to what you thought you were going to amount to. Maybe it's your marriage. You don't feel loved, appreciated, or estrangement from kids. Maybe it's mild depression or severe depression or a sense of anxiety. Anxiety is a big one. Okay, locate it. And I encourage you to be doing this on your own as well. And then ask the Holy Spirit to help you get honest and see how, how does that affect your behavior? What are you doing to try to address that emptiness? Um, how are you acting out on that? Are there ways that you're trying to meet that emptiness that are not about Christ? Maybe very inappropriate ways. You know, all immorality, all sin is motivated by a hungry heart. It's just an ungodly way of trying to get full. How are you trying to meet that? Or... For, for a lot of folks, it's maybe not even trying to meet that need, but how are you trying to dull it? Dull the hunger. Uh, ways that you try to distract yourself from the hunger. Could be your obsessive work, so you never have to sit and look at yourself, examine yourself. Uh, could be too much television. Could be dulling it through drugs or alcohol or addictions. How are you dulling that? Or how are you meeting it? In other ways, Holy Spirit, help us to, to see this. And then, if you're a follower of Jesus, would you make this commitment here? Once you understand it, and I encourage you to do this over and over again. Because it's hard to get in touch with ourselves. You have to work at it. But when, when you see it, will you make this commitment to turn from the way that you're dulling it, or trying to meet that hunger inappropriately 
realizing that this is false, and you're cheating on Christ. You're cheating on Christ. Trying to meet that hunger in ways that are not dealing with him. You turn from it, and now will you use the pain, commit to using the pain to drive you to Christ. Maybe it's about spending more time with Christ. Use that pain. Even the pain of the marriage, the pain of the loneliness, the pain of the lost opportunities, the pain of the alienation to drive you to Christ. It's like, a, it's like fuel in a, in a rocket ship that just launches you. It can, it can just jettison you towards Christ if you use it in that way. And just commit to getting closer and closer to him. Realizing that until he returns, there's always going to be some emptiness. Don't frame that as a bad thing. Frame it as a good thing. You're supposed to long for the kingdom to come. Just make that commitment. Turn. That's what repentance is about. You just turn from it. And say, okay, I'm going to use the pain to get closer to Christ. Uh, I'm going to close in prayer here, and as I do, I want to ask the prayer teams to come forward. And if you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, whether it's about this issue or something else entirely, please spend time praying with these folks. That's what they're here for, and it's a beautiful ministry. But Abba Father, I pray that the commitment that we have made here today, or at least the, the commitment that we've begun here today, would continue. Holy Spirit, remind us of this. God, help us to be freed from dulling, medicating, running away from our pain. Uh, God, help us to be free from... Uh, carnal, sinful, or maybe religious ways of medicating our pain that are outside of Christ. God, we want to be your body, not, not decapitated. We want to belong to the head. And so, Father, drive us to you. Uh, you use, help us to be a people who have wisdom to use their pain to drive towards you, and to be all the people we can be, to be people who are used by you to change this world as we ourselves are changed in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said one last time, Amen. God bless you guys. Go out. Behold. Mr. of the world around you. God bless. Love you.